COVID-19 is just one in a string of many such diseases. And there will be more unless we change behavior. Hi, I'm Shiv Khera and you're listening to The Ed Show. Welcome to The Ed Show, a podcast where I sit with some amazing personalities from across sectors and borders to have meaningful conversation on topics that matters to us. My guest for today is someone who has been an inspiration for many. Born in Orissa, India, he was fond of reading books in childhood and his deep understanding of diverse topics made him establish himself as an environmental economist and then as a Supreme Court lawyer. After serving the country under national services, he decided to work for the United Nations and presently serving as the head of UNF headquarters in New York and as the United Nations Assistant Secretary General. He is Satya Tripathi. Hi, Satya. Welcome on the show. Thank you for having me. Satya, do you think that the Sustainable Development Goals Agenda, since you are uh, you know, linked with SDGs, since its foundation, you are a part of it, uh, it suffers the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, the SDGs, uh, as it was being um, uh, conceptualized, um, the person leading the work on behalf of the UN, of course, there were a lot of people involved, but the key person was Amina Mohammad, the current Deputy Secretary General, because she was then the special advisor to the Secretary General, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, on the post-2015 development agenda as the MDGs were coming to a close, um, there was a lot of discussions on what next. Um, And then, of course, the world came together and, uh, uh, you know, pulled together this amazing uh, uh, set of sustainable development goals which uh, is also something with a 15-year timeline, perhaps drawing inspiration from the MDGs timeline. Now, the MDGs were kind of a closed-loop conversation with very few people uh, contributing to the formulation of the eight MDGs. And uh, unlike that, the SDGs were the product of tremendous amount of contributions and hard work by the people of the peoples of the world, you know, all over the world, people contributing um, through a global consultative process. So, so it is not something kind of put up by the UN, which the MDG was often accused of. Uh, but, uh, but this is something that the UN facilitated a consultative process for the whole world, um, civil society uh, stakeholders. And of course, the member states uh, came together to articulate what must the world do in the next 15 years to be a just and equitable planet. Um, and, and that's how, um, while to some it might look like a laundry list of uh, targets, uh, because there are 17 SDGs and 169 targets, but at the same time, um, those are the bare minimum you need to be a just, equitable, and sustainable planet. And as evidence has shown us in the last five years, while some SDGs were on track by some countries, not all countries, most SDGs remain lagging in terms of the 
objectives in terms of the targets foreseen and what we have achieved. And then add to that the COVID-19 crisis where um, countries, even resourceful countries are stretched to their limit to find resources to fight this virus and its impact on the society and the economy. And then of course that impacts the achievement of the SDGs where um, we need to build uh, a fundamentally different economic model where uh, we take responsibility for our behavior and our actions and change course so that not just people, but the planet is also sustainable. And mind you, the planet doesn't need people. The planet has been here for hundreds of millions of years and it will go on uh, even if people uh, are not around. So nature doesn't need people, people need nature. And it is time we shed our arrogance and, uh, and start really internalizing this fact that humility uh, and responsibility in terms of our own actions is extremely important for the planet to come back from the brink. And again, you know, when I say planet, I'm again talking about people because the planet will go on once people are not around. So you are bang on with your statement that uh, planet doesn't need people, nature doesn't need people, people need nature. And with this, you know, what do you think that, you know, uh, during uh, or amidst COVID-19, when we have statistics like 155 million people will be pushed back into the poverty, then can we say that the road ahead looks bumpier and now we need to put in more efforts to achieve the goal? No, I mean, you know, it's a simple thing. The, you can draw some um, inspiration from our climate example, where we... Uh, have been talking for nearly 50 years now. The first time climate was formally put on the table was in 1972 um, around the World Conference on Sustainable Development. Um, and, uh, and the famous report uh, led by uh, Grohal and Brundtland, the Brundtland Commission. Um, and uh, it's been close to 50 years. And actually, 1972 was also the birth year of the UN Environment Program. Um, and uh, we haven't done much. I mean, there have been basic shifts in the needle, perhaps, that we can draw comfort from, but uh, we just have fiddled and fiddled and fiddled as the human species. And, and you can, of course, um, fall back upon the old argument, which is you blame a set of countries. Uh, perhaps uh, you find uh, great justifications in doing that because the facts are the facts. Uh, but at the same time, what remains uh, critical is that everybody needs to act. A problem created by 8 billion people uh, cannot be solved by just the member states or a bunch of corporations who might bear greater share of the challenge and the problem. Uh, but at the same time, um, a, a, it's, a, it's a problem created by people, that's why it's called anthropogenic climate change, anthropos, which it does. And, and so when we have generated the climate change, we have to be the solution. So what does that mean? Uh, what it means is that people need to take responsibility for their actions um, and, and not by blaming others, but by looking inward. And I often say that uh, the journey inward is the most uh, adventurous and spectacular of all because it's difficult to confront yourself. It's very easy to confront others. 
and then so when we look within and uh, we find what we need to do no one is suggesting that people should starve or not eat or not take a bath or not wear good clothes nobody is suggesting that but just by being a little responsible we can change the paradigm pretty rapidly and and the planet needs that in the next 10 years so the sdgs are not the only important thing in the next 10 years because if we don't meet the climate challenge we're not going to achieve any of the sdgs either so they are intertwined intermingled and we must act on multiple fronts mm-hmm. to achieve the goals we need to by the end of the decade so to completely agree that every single being on this planet is responsible for the environment concerns but the marginalized society is facing the actual environmental threats especially uh, you know when we have statistics that about 132 million of the global poor lives in you know areas with high flood risk and it's not just about living in high flood risk it is also about understanding that people living in poverty are prone to environmental threats that our society cannot even see well the uh, let's look at the evidence we just um, lost 5 million acres of forests and habitations in the west coast of the united states um 5 years ago if you look back uh, um into indonesia um at that time i used to be the head of uh, uh, an institution called un orchid which was created by 10 un agencies and inaugurated by the then secretary general himself um to create catalytic environmental action um and there uh, in 2015 the forest and peatland fires burned almost 6 million acres of land um, in indonesia and forest land peatland peatland uh, which contains uh, uh, methane uh, which is as much as depending on whether it is long term impacts on short term impacts you are talking about could be as bad as 90 times potency than co2 um and 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 so that's the challenge you look at the australian bushfires or the hurricanes in the caribbean they're just mounting in numbers and intensity and frequency um, look at the kerala floods in india a few years ago when we had those floods uh, we were reminded that uh, this was a once in a 100 year flood then again 3 years later we had another flood um and uh which was a few months ago and again same intensity and uh, severity so the point is that these are not aberrations in the weather patterns uh, these are not rare occurrences anymore uh, the evidence is mounting uh, the siberian lakes the permafrost in the lakes are uh, melting and the methane is bubbling up to the surface the ice sheets in greenland are melting the arctic commission set up by the us government came up with its report a few months ago and basically told us that the arctic ice is melting 30 times faster um than it was a few decades earlier <clears throat> so you know one could go on and on and on um and uh, and and the poor will pay the price the the, the marginalized will pay the price the vulnerable will pay the price because they have very little resilience uh, the well to do uh, people the people who can afford to tide over a crisis uh, are always are, uh, in a better place let's look at the digital economy um, um it has empowered people like never before 
But even as COVID struck, uh, people that are in the digital economy can actually work from home. Um, not so for uh, people that uh, work in the grocery stores or people that work in their farms, people that work in the transport sector, uh, in the physical economy, uh, because without them, we'll all be uh, dead and there will be no economy. So they keep us alive and they're on the front line, the doctors, the nurses, the paramedics, um, and uh, they suffer the most. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, the case uh, in the United States of America alone, uh, where I am based at this time, uh, if you look at the, uh, the fatalities from COVID-19, uh, you'll see that marginalized communities, poor and the vulnerable, have the highest fatality rates. Uh, and same in other parts of the world. Many a time it's lack of access to appropriate medical care at the, within the time frame because the virus decides the time frame of infection and uh, to uh, mortality. <clears throat> so, so this is something that we really need to keep in mind that you cannot have climate justice without equity. Mm. And you cannot have equity without transitioning to a green economy, uh, which is where man's actions are in harmony with the sustaining capacity of nature. You know, this actually leaves me with two different questions and both are uh, you know, on, on two different streams. So one of the question is that you know, COVID, as, as per certain reports, that uh, COVID-19 has actually uh, you know, gave the opportunity to our nature to heal itself. How much is the fact in this particular statement? Because uh, you know I have been reading a lot from different sources that uh, you know the eyes that you were talking about it has reduced the ozone layer has uh, you know started uh, stopped depleting and it has started recovering and you know rivers are get, getting cleaner so on and so forth. There are a lot of reports coming coming on uh, with uh, the healing of nature by itself during uh, COVID nineteen pandemic. Well, I think there are lessons to draw from what is happening. Uh, the first lesson is that uh, nature doesn't ask for much. So if we stop being as vengeful um, on nature, nature will heal, heal itself. It doesn't need us to heal it. So that's the first lesson to draw. Uh, the second lesson is that these are transient uh, gains, um, whatever little gains there are, um, are transient gains because climate change is about long-term impacts on the atmosphere and the global warming and what follows from the global warming. Now, if you, the main metric that scientists use is the carbon concentration in the atmosphere. So currently it's roughly around 415 parts per million, uh, which is something we haven't seen in um, several million years. Um, and uh, the last time it was, was several million years ago. And uh, what does that tell us? What it tells us is that you might have these blips, these little gains that you make, but unless you change your behavior, uh, it's a lifestyle change uh, that you need. So uh, what I can draw example from, uh, a very simple example could be of people that are obese. You don't eat for a few days or a few months. Yes, you reduce weight. Uh, but if it is not a lifestyle change, you gain that back pretty quickly right. and it actually gets much worse because you're giving the kind of shocks to the body that after a few of these cycles, um, 
it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. You know, to, to paraphrase what Mark Twain said famously, that it is so easy to quit smoking, I should know for I have done it a thousand times. So uh, <laughs> the same holds true for uh, human behavior. Uh, unless we really change the way we do business with uh, nature and how we treat planet Earth, um, these occasional shifts in behavior uh, ordained by situations beyond our control are not really going to save the planet. And you know the, the second question that uh, I wanted to ask you is related to one of your statements that you quoted and I'm saying that if you are looking for public funds to do public good, then there will be there will never be enough resources because 70% of the world's GDP is with the private sector. Now, how do you see this as a threat, especially in times like these when the top private players have increased their wealth multifolds and the people under marginalized societies have been pushed back in poverty? And now it will take another five years to bring them back on track. Well, you know, it. Uh, let me go back to what I was saying earlier, question of resilience. People with greater amount of resources have resilience, right? So, so they don't fall back into poverty or penury as quickly as uh, poor people do because poor people have too little resilience. Um, they, they work their, um, all their lives from one meal to another um, and, and or, or they earn too little um, and then they have so little reserves that suddenly say somebody in the family is sick and then the entire family uh, reserves are wiped out or, or or there is an incident, let's say somebody has an accident in the family. I mean, you could think of a thousand different possibilities. Every little situation saps you of your reserves, not so with well-to-do people. Um, and, 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 and it is indeed uh, challenging for the world to grapple with the fact that uh, um, that uh, a lot of the wealth that has been created since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis is uh, for the top 1% of the population, uh, which is not unlike any other crisis, because if you have greater resilience, then you can, of course, um, you stay around long enough to gain the benefits from a recovery. Um, and, and then that's what we're seeing here as well, maybe a little disproportionately for certain businesses, but, but that's the nature of business cycles. You know, some businesses gain like vaccine developers, like uh, online stores and others. Of course, if people can't go out and buy things from a shop, then they go online and buy something. And then of course, delivery companies. So, so that's normal to expect in any business cycle. There are some businesses that are poised to gain uh, during certain kind of events uh, and, 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 and that's um, we can debate whether it's right or wrong but, but there's a reason for why it works the way it does but the, the fact remains that um, um, the world's GDP is as, as uh, is uh, known uh, roughly about 30% in the public sector and 70% in the private sector. Um, and, uh, and that's good because uh, both sectors have significant contributory roles to play. Uh, the public sector is, of course, public infrastructure, 
manages the country, internal security, external security, transport, you know, education, healthcare, and those are things we have learned from experience that the government needs to play a big part in those things. It may not be necessarily the only part, but but certainly important because many a times uh, private infrastructure follows the lead of public infrastructure. Um, and then that's uh, that's a responsibility that we as citizens of our respective nations give to the governments and uh, and the governments then spend it in the best possible manner through uh, legislative processes, through uh, parliament mand mandates and, and what have you. And then, then the private sector, of course, is very important because it creates opportunities uh, for advancement. It creates economic growth. There's nothing wrong with that arrangement. What is wrong is that we have been using nature way beyond its sustainability threshold for too long. And that's what uh, is a problem because the private sector will go bust. They'll soon run out of resources to use or abuse or misuse. And that is why it is very important um, so without thinking for the other person or for the other community or the other village or the other county or the municipality or the country, even if we are very selfish and we think for ourselves only, or if I'm a corporation, think for myself only as a corporation, I should be very worried about where the world is headed. Um, and then that is why it is very important to build these virtuous partnerships where you bring together a diverse set of actors because all business, in, in very simple terms, all business investments are about risk and returns. You know, in one country you go, the interest rates are 1%, in another country it's 12%. Why? Because of the inherent risks of investment in the country, in the economy, in a particular business or the underlying assets that um, support that business. You know, so there are a lot of variables that decide what is the cost of capital. Now, the moment you bring together a diverse set of actors to work together around a common problem and then build a business model around it, then you have effectively managed the risk even before you start the business. Like, what are the risks? Where will you get your raw materials from? Where will you get your finances from? Once you produce something, where will you sell them? Uh, who's buying? So let's say you found the investment, you found the business model, you found the person that's going to buy everything, and you ring fence all of that up front and present a business case to an investor. Then the investor looks at it and says, wow, for all the challenges, this is not challenging at all because we can actually invest. And an investment in nature, investment in forests, investment in sustainable agriculture requires uh, long-term investments and a lot of patience on the part of the investor. And of course, a little less greed because if everybody is looking for 10, 15% returns, there is no return like that for everybody. Maybe somebody who's able to forecast things better, um, predict things in a more effectively, might make a little more than those that cannot or those that are looking for certainty and safety 
and putting their money in fixed deposits and banks. And that, that's been there for as long as we can remember. But if everybody is looking for the same kind of risks and the same kind of returns, it doesn't work. Uh, and that is why uh, we all need to temper down the greed um, a little bit and start thinking about Mother Nature because she sustains us all. And by helping ourselves, we'll help her help us. Uh, and, and, and so if we can figure out a way to uh, channelize resources into nature positive investments, then I think it's a win-win for literally everyone. And when I say uh, figuring out, just to give you an example, uh, if you take the top uh, 300 pension funds in the world, and, and, and there are thousands of them, by the way, um, they manage $18 trillion in assets. And they're all long-term investments because pension funds are not looking to make a quick buck. Maybe a certain small percentage of that is, but because they need the liquidity and the cash flows to keep paying the pensions in the shorter term, but most of their investments are long-term. Uh, same with insurance companies for their corpus. Um, and, and, and just talking about these 300 pension funds of the $18 trillion they manage, if they just set aside 5% or 10% of that for long-term nature-positive investments, we're talking about $1.8 trillion if they set aside 10%, and 10% is not a big risk to their investments at all. It's a small risk. But that small risk will be worth huge returns for Mother Earth. And then that's how we all need to start thinking. There's a shift and, and, and uh, the Secretary General has spent an entire year harping on this point um, that we need to be mindful of three things, climate change and the tremendous impact it will have on all the 7.8 million species inhabiting the planet, but most certainly the humans because we use pretty much 75% of all the resources already. And uh, the second is um, sustainable finance because without money, all the best ideas don't mean much. And lastly, adaptation, because we have not acted for so long that we need to, whatever we do would have to be um, adaptation positive. Like you want to, um, go into forests, you have to bring back forests while you are producing something. And this is something we, uh, UNEP supported uh, the Tropical Landscapes Finance Facility in Indonesia, where the first project there is of $350 million, a partnership with the entire company Michelin to uh, protect a 400,000 hectare rainforest landscape. Um, about 23% uh, of the land was already degraded through illegal logging and plundering, and the government gave that land as a concession. So 50,000 hectares of that land is being uh, now preserved and um, the, um, the carbon stock is being enhanced by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, WWF, um, and another 38,000 hectares uh, is being used by Michelin to put up the world's largest sustainable rubber plantation. Um, with a productivity 125% of what is the average productivity in Indonesia now. Um, and then that's, uh, that employs 50,000 people directly and indirectly. 
and, and all of it without any government subsidies. It's all private investment, but because a whole variety of stakeholders came together and built a partnership so that the investors feel confident. Um, something similar is happening in Andhra Pradesh state of India, where they're converting 60 lakh farmers to zero chemical farming and producing clean food. Uh, and more importantly, the input costs are 80% less compared to conventional agriculture and the output goes up anywhere between 20 to 200%. And, and as of now, they have almost converted 10 lakh farmers. Uh, and there, different investors are coming up and investing in that program um, with incredibly low amount, low rates of interest. Uh, and, and, and that's possible because when a partnership emerges around a great idea, um, then everybody feels comfortable and confident that this is not some voodoo scheme, but something so substantive that we really need to put our money where our mouth is. And that's what is happening in Andhra Pradesh. And, and mind you, all of that does not really, the, the, even the loans at ultra low costs of interest, um, they will be repaid by the government, but the government is in the process going to save five times more money actually, because when you're not using fertilizers, you don't have to give fertilizer subsidies. In the next 10 years, Andhra Pradesh will roughly spend about 35,000 crores in fertilizer subsidies. And if you look at farm electricity subsidies, that will be 60, 70,000 crores. Whereas the total investment on converting 60 lakh farmers um, is roughly about 10,000 crores. So it's a win-win-win for everybody, including uh, Mother Earth. You know, uh, on one end, we have one of the biggest Swedish retailer, which has been, uh, you know, uh, in, in reports uh, that they are illegally you know, deforesting a couple of European forests, right? Illegal uh, logging and, and other things. And secondly, when we talk about, uh, you know, the tropical rainforest and giving it to corporate, so corporate usually plant the kind of trees which they would want to, uh, you know, uh, use in, in, in the near future. You know, maybe the rubber, rubber plantation that you have rightly quoted. So when we talk about tropical rainforest, tropical rainforest is a mix of multiple varieties of trees and plantation. However, when we are putting in only one particular kind of or two particular kind of trees, then do you think that it is also kind of, uh, you know, as, as we say in, in, in uh, India, that excess of everything is always bad. You know, our, our elders always say that. Do you, don't you think that the excess of a particular kind of plantation in, uh, in tropical forest will actually be a threat instead of an opportunity? Well, monoculture is bad in any forest, whether it's tropical, subtropical, temperate, it doesn't matter, or boreal, it doesn't matter. The monoculture is bad because nature did not conceive um, forest to be monoculture. Um, so they have, there has to be uh, species diversity uh, across the board, and then that's absolutely um, uh, goes without saying. You know, we don't need to discuss that because that's a fact. But when you do, uh, when you work, the example I was citing um, is is an example where roughly ninety thousand hectares was already degraded. There was nothing there. The forests were destroyed uh, through illegal logging and so there was nothing there. So what you're trying to do is 
um, you're trying to create uh, a business model, a business case where uh, you create multiple buffers, right? So even though roughly 90,000 hectares is destroyed, nearly 300,000 hectares forest still remains. So the idea is not to touch that, um, and but to protect that. And how do you protect that? So the immediate horseshoe ring around that forest is the protected area that WWF is managing. So, so it's a 50,000 hectare forest area actually, which is coming back as a diverse forest. So that's not a monoculture by any chance. Now the extreme outer ring, um, which is completely gone. So that's where the rubber is coming up and rubber is a more beneficial species as compared to oil palm or, or any of these other uh, productive species that commercial farming uses. But in that it is rubber is a tree. Uh, it's not a shrub. Um, and uh, it's not an oil palm. So that's a big advantage. And also, you don't cut down rubber trees every three years because the rubber is beneficial when you have a strong tree, uh, very healthy and productive, so that you can tap the rubber from it. So it lasts for decades. Not uh, uh, So it, in that sense, it's not a plantation forest where you need to cut down um, every few years so that's the advantage and also the idea is to create a business model where you can actually replicate these to protect the harm is already done so this is not uh, taking down forest to put up a plantation a rubber plantation but a forest that didn't exist anymore um, and the rest of the forest was going so how do you arrest the fall um, uh, or the decimation of the forest. So the 50,000 people I mentioned, 16,000 directly employed and 34,000 through the tertiary uh, and secondary sectors of the economy. Uh, these are the same people, mostly, not everyone perhaps, um, that were being uh, brainwashed and used by vested interests to cut down the forest. So creating a people planet compact is key to protecting uh, the natural wealth and so that's what it is and and what do you have to say about uh, the bigger furniture giants uh, which uh, are illegally cutting down trees and, and uh, are responsible for deforestation how do you see organizations like these as a threat well i think every organization uh, that uh, is proven to be doing this must be uh, taken to task to the full extent of the law where the uh, violations happen, uh, but but picking up on what you asked in terms of a broader theme, um, what is important is to understand that this is not an endless picture. There is no bottomless picture in terms of nature. Uh, nature works in sustainable stocks and flows. So if you keep the stocks intact um, and healthy, the flows will continue perennially. If you don't, then um, then you lose them, whether through uh, natural loss of forests or through uh, global warming and the uh, loss of moisture in the atmosphere and accidental forest fires turning to humongous uh, fire events uh, at a planetary scale. 
we've seen all that and we'll see many more of it. So it's, it's a zero-sum game. Um, but nature isn't a zero-sum game if we support, sustain and strengthen nature. Otherwise, it is indeed a zero-sum game. And, uh, you know, as per the recent report, and the recent reports have actually highlighted that we need urgent action to limit temperature rise below 1.5 degrees Celsius, right? Then, uh, in such case, how UN is working with companies and governments to accelerate this action? Well, the UN is, I mean, you know, the UN is one of the many players in the field. I mean, the UN is the collective conscience of the world, if I may, or the moral voice of the world. So in that, uh, all of us, led by Secretary General Guterres, uh, we do everything we can within our power to, uh, to rally the forces, to advocate for the cause, to bring together actors, member states, uh, corporations through the very many arms of the UN. But ultimately, um, the UN is not a corporate. The UN doesn't cut down trees. The UN doesn't uh, uh, do things that hurt the planet. Um, and then it is those um, that really need to um, stand up for what is right. And, and, uh, and there has to be a paradigm shift. Um, the Secretary General, in his first term, um, has made it his singular most important mission to highlight the challenge of climate change. Um, earlier this month, uh, he made a state of the planet speech at Columbia University, uh, where he highlighted these things that everything else that we are targeting and like, you know, talk about the virus, you know, uh, and the vaccine, we made a lot of efforts and, uh, and of course, it's not equitable. Um, it's still a big challenge. Uh, most countries of the world wouldn't receive the vaccines till late 2021 uh, in good numbers. Um, and, uh, and at this time, um, the leaders in Africa are really concerned that uh, uh, perhaps 20% of the population in Africa will get vaccinated in 2021, and that's unacceptable by any standards. Um, so we need to find solutions to those immediate challenges. But the bigger challenge is this. We at UNEP and the International Livestock Research Institute, ILRI, uh, we together published a study a few months ago. Um, and then that tells us that 75% uh, of uh, the new diseases that humanity has been confronted with in the last uh, few decades are zoonotic diseases where pathogens jump from animals to humans. And that um, COVID-19 is just one in a string of many such diseases. And there will be more unless we change behavior. And that has happened because we have pretty much taken over 75% of the habitat, pushing all the other 7.8 million species into a much more confined space, resulting in either we cohabiting their space or they cohabiting with us. And so this was bound to happen sooner or later. And so COVID-19 is not the last pandemic in human history. I'm reasonably certain there will be more. When and how, no one knows, but uh, there's enough evidence to suggest that there will be more. That's the big lesson to draw from this, that unless we change behavior, uh, band-aid, patchworks won't work. I mean, yes, of course, there is a virus and and it's 
it's deadly and we need to deal with it here and now and and the world is doing everything it can but the world also needs to spare some time to think what next how do we change behavior that so that this doesn't happen again um putting up large stockpiles of ppe equipment masks medicines and what have you to prepare for the next pandemic is important but not as important as avoiding that pandemic by changed behavior and especially the rise in epidemics as per who report has actually uh, you know gave us the idea of uh, how, you know we are actually living in a threat and covid-19 is just a start and there could be many other outbreaks there are so many you know so so if you live in the west coast of uh, united states where pretty much everything burned down um 5 million acres that's your direct and most compelling evidence that climate change is happening or if you live in the caribbean where the hurricanes are happening with alarming regularity completely sapping the countries in the caribbean region of their wealth and resources and all development gains um or or the bushfires uh, in australia or the forest fires in indonesia or the floods and the droughts in india i mean people are getting much more direct evidence for a long time uh perhaps covid is a much more immediate and uh, mm-hmm. uh existential threat but these threats have been around for a while we just need to open our eyes and listen to the science and you know uh, there is another statistics which states that by 2050 the global population is projected to hit 9 billion plus people how can we you know if if this is the case then how can we improve our current system so that we can reduce inequalities and we can also improve uh, environment uh, at the same time by not asking the wrong questions you know um, of course the numbers are um, some say 9 some say closer to 10 it doesn't matter the numbers will be more um, so even assuming it is 9 billion and not 10 billion the question people often ask are, are in false binaries the question they ask is how are we going to feed 10 billion people by 2050 and that's the wrong question to ask the right question to ask is how are we going to improve uh, fertility the productivity of land how do we improve the factor of productivity how do we make food much more clean and healthy so that we don't have a public health epidemic on our hands which we already do and uh, and that is possible by looking simply at the fact that currently the world wastes pretty much 40% of everything that is produced from cradle to grave we waste 40% through um, um poor uh, agricultural practices um through uh, poor uh, plant nutrition uh, or uh, uh, pesticides and herbicides um, and then uh, poor storage poor transportation poor processing and then of course in many countries around the world food is lost by the hundreds of millions of tons on the table uh we just are too greedy we take food and we don't eat and we throw it away so if you figure that out that 40% waste is to zero as of now then you are talking about being able to feed 60% more people so if the world's population is 8 billion now 
then you can actually feed 60% more people without needing an extra inch of land. So that's the question to ask. And those are the challenges to solve rather than asking the wrong questions. And of course, um, as they say, it's the question stupid. So if you ask the wrong questions, no wonder you get the wrong answers. Yeah. And with this, it's time to say goodbye to you, Satya. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Shimanshu. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Ed Show. You can now listen to the same podcast on Apple and Google Podcasts, or you can watch it live on YouTube. And I'll see you in the next episode. Till then, stay safe and stay happy. Thank you.